Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. The Heart of a Stranger is an anthology of poetry, fiction, and nonfiction that journeys through six continents with over 100 contributors drawn from 24 languages. So pretty cool. Um, Edmund DeWall, I hope I'm saying that right because I've never heard it spoken out loud, um, writes uh, that The Heart of, the Stranger, Heart of a Stranger is a wonderful, provocative, and resonant anthology, a necessary book. Andre Nafis Saheli is the author of the collection The Promised Land, Poems from Itinerant Life, which I think we have a copy of up front, um, and The Other Side of Nowhere. His writing has appeared in The Nation, Harper's, Poetry, New Statesman, and the list really does go on. Um, it's like 10 more here. Okay. Um, his translations include over 20 titles of fiction, poetry, and nonfiction, several of which have been featured as books of the year in The Guardian, Literary Hub, and National Public Radio. Fred Dagar, did I do it right? Yeah. It's a, is a poet, novelist, and playwright. He is the uh, is a poet, novelist, and playwright. He is the author. I told you. It was, all right, uh, I warned you. He is the author of four novels. The first of which, The Longest Memory, won both the David Higgum Prize for Fiction and the Whitbread Whitbread First Novel Award. His plays include High Life and A Jamaican Airman Foresees His Death. He teaches at UCLA and in Kalaloo's Creative Writing Workshop. So, we're very excited to have these two incredibly talented authors with us today, and we, we're going to have a third person uh, uh, join us in just a moment. Um, please join me in welcoming these two, Andre Nafis Saheli and Fred Dagar. Um, thank you very much, Kave, for that introduction. Um, sorry, let me get set up. There we go. And thank you to all of you for coming. Um, I'm, I'm going to thank Fred right up front because um, he's one of my favorite contemporary contributors to the volume. Because like Kave said, there's 100 uh, different contributors. About 30 of them are contemporary, still with us, and Fred is one of my favorites. We're also going to be joined by Professor James Ford, who's sitting right up here in the front row. And he's going to be talking to us about Phyllis Wheatley, who is one of the other authors represented in this anthology. So we'll hear from James and Fred in a few minutes. Um, what I wanted to do to start with is just... Uh, read a few pieces before kind of launching into the architecture of the book and what the aim of it really was. Um, and I guess in tribute to uh, what's been going on recently in Iran and Iraq, I thought it'd be really nice to read a poem by a Kurdish uh, poet. Um, and the Kurds, in a sense, um, they're very well represented in this volume, unfortunately. That's not quite a blessing. It's more of a curse. I think the more represented you are in a volume like this, the worse life has been for your community. But the Kurds have this, you know, very, um, how to put it, depressing distinction of being the world's lar largest stateless nation at about 30 million. I think um, there is no closest second, uh, at least according to those kind of figures. And so I wanted to read this poem 
Uh, it's by the poet called Kajal Ahmed, and it was translated by uh, another Kurdish poet whose work I'd really recommend, her name is Choman Hardy, and by the Iranian poet Mimi Kalvati. Um, so this is called Birds. <coughs> According to the latest classification, Kurds now belong to a species of bird, which is why across the torn, yellowing pages of history, they are nomads spotted by caravans. Yes, Kurds are birds. And even when there's nowhere left, no refuge for their pain, they turn to the illusion of traveling between the warm and cold climes of their homeland. So naturally, I don't think it's strange that Kurds can fly. They go from country to country and still never realize their dreams of settling, of forming a colony. They build no nests, and not even on their final landing do they visit Melawana to inquire of his health or bow down to the dust in the gentle wind like Nali. So that was Birds by Kajal Ahmed. Um, and this other piece I wanted to read is a little fable that I think just needs the following preface, which is um, when I was a kid, I used to listen to my mother's old records, and one of them was by this Italian songwriter called Fabrizio De André. And it, during a performance, he broke off uh, from playing his songs, and he gave a speech about how he thought that the people who are, who are still referred to as gypsies, the Romanis of Europe, um, should really be the top candidate for the Nobel Peace Prize because they have the one distinction among the world's communities, which is that of having traveled throughout their history from country to country, but while never settling down, also never starting a conflict, never starting a war, never organizing in groups to perpetrate violence upon other groups, um, which is quite a rare distinction when you look at the human species. Um, and so for that reason, he wanted them to win the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, it's a community that uh, I think has always tried to come up with origin stories for itself because of the fact that its origins are fairly nebulous, like the capsule review of the, the uh, origins of the Romanis would be that they started supposedly somewhere in northern India, migrated through Persia and into Europe. But that's still a theory that's full of holes. Um, so the piece I'm going to read now is by a writer called Valdemar Kalinin, who was born in Belarus, but he spent most of his life in the UK where he became a campaigner for Romani issues and a, uh, a fairly distinguished writer. And this little fable here is one of my favorite pieces in the book. It's called Anna Romani Set Off. Once upon a time, many thousands of years ago, all sorts of people lived in the Garden of Eden. It was the most beautiful garden. Do you know what I mean, I mean by paradise? It's a sophisticated sort of place where truthful people lived in great comfort. They worked hard and had plenty of everything. Now, one day, believing his people were ready for it, God decided to give them all their own countries and scatter them to the four corners of the earth. He announced the day on which they should present themselves before him to claim their title deeds bearing God's own seal. But since, as you know, God lives in inaccessible light, it was his angels who dealt with the people. On the appointed day, the weather was exceptionally lovely. The morning was warm and the birds were singing. Ah, if only we knew what those birds looked like and the sound of their song. Anyway, the Romani man was so soundly asleep that he overslept his appointment. One can only imagine the profound sleep induced by that garden, shadowed as it must have been by sweetly scented flowers and lulled 
by the quiet murmuring of distant streams. Suddenly, he was abruptly woken by the sound of joyful singing nearby. Indeed, it was only when some gajo, and gajo is the Romani word for foreigner, tripped over him that he sat up. Why are you all so happy, he asked. Because I was given my land, and I'm going to cultivate it. Hurry up, Romani, otherwise you might be given barren land. And he hurried along on his way. The Romani man set off to the Paradise Palace. On his way, he met different gajay neighbors who told him the good news of their newly inherited land. The Romani man realized by the time he reached the palace, there would be nothing left for him. So he decided it would be better not to ask. When he arrived at the palace, everyone was busy discussing the technicalities of settling their lands and dividing up the countries with the angels. The senior angel asked the Romani man what he wanted. Nothing special, he said. I just want to thank God and his angels for this wonderful life in the Garden of Eden. But what country would you like? The angels asked. I'm happy to stay right here, said the Romani man. Let me once again express my gratitude on behalf of all these people. However, there is one small thing. Maybe you would let me visit my neighbors from time to time in new countries. The angel said, because you are the only one who asked God for nothing, you are given the right to wander the face of the earth, to visit all its countries and stay there as long as you like. The Romani man thanked the angel and set off on a long journey across the countries of his neighbors. And that is why he continues to roam to this day. So that's one of the, the many, many fables that the Romanis across the centuries have written for themselves. Um, and another, well, I guess this would be a good point to say that the starting premise of the book really is very simple. There is no such thing as civilization without exile. There is no such thing as a community without the uh, incredibly problematic act of uh, deciding whom to eject because it seems that there can really be no community that doesn't eject some of its members at some point. So what I decided to do, um, before I became a writer, uh, all I was was really a student of history. That's what I studied at college. So this is a, a history of civilization from ancient Egypt to the present day that basically tells you the history of civilization through how we choose to treat um, outsiders whom we think do not belong in our communities. Um, and let me tell you, it's both <laughs> uh, delightfully interesting and also incredibly depressing. Uh, but one thing I wanted to read, and I, th I think this is, it's a passage that's been translated many, many times, because part of the problem here, as you can imagine, if you're trying to represent all the six continents and as many languages as you can, and there are 24, if not actually 25 in here, you're obviously gonna come up with a wealth of different translations, um, especially when you're looking at something like Dante. And there's an excerpt from Dante's Paradise in this book. And I wanted to read a little excerpt from this piece, because some of the contributions like the Kajal Ahmed poem, Birds, that I read to you is very short, just fits on one page. This Dante excerpt is about four or five. But in here, Dante basically uh, resurrects a moment from his past when he's already been exiled from Florence for political reason. Because 
one thing that we don't keep in mind is that the Inferno, Limbo, Paradise, it's essentially uh, the bitchiest blog you can ever possibly imagine. That's what it really is. You know, it's, uh, it's Dante going, these people have treated me badly and now they're in the seventh circle of hell and that guy crossed me off two weeks ago and now he's in the ninth circle of hell. Um, and in Paradise, it's, it's only in Paradise really that he starts, he, well, he stops hating and starts trying to figure out what life is actually all about. So although Inferno is sexy in that way because it's just full of hate and anger and uh, I mean, I think a lot of people here probably say I'd, I'd invent the circle of hell for certain people. Um, mm -hmm. But it's only in paradise that he actually starts to think things through. And here he gets confronted by this imaginary uh, character whom he conjures to basically show how he has been wronged and how he has been made to suffer this pain of exile. And despite the fact that he's really, I mean, he really is uh, quite self-pitying. Um, and there was an emphasis to try and remove self-pity as much as possible from this project. It's why you won't find any Ovid, for example, even though he's quite famous for exile. If you read his poems from exile, most of them uh, feature him saying, oh, now I'm good, won't you let me back to Rome, and you know, so forth. Um, so here's this line that I, from Dante's Paradiso. You shall leave everything most dearly loved. This is the first one of the arrows which the bow of exile is prepared to shoot. You shall discover how salty is the savor of someone else's bread and how hard the way to come down and climb up another stairs. And what will weigh down on your shoulders the most will be the bad and brainless company with whom you shall fall down into this ditch. For all shall turn ungrateful, all insane and impious against you. But soon after their brows and not your own shall blush for it. So. Again, definitely not bitter at all, Dante. He's never bitter. Um, so I'm just gonna read one more text here and then hand things over to James, whom I'll introduce properly. Um, actually, you know what? I'm going to bring James up right now, actually, because um, there's a piece I wanna read afterwards. So. Um, if you could all please welcome James Ford. Um, James is a professor of English at Occidental College. And he is here to talk to us about Phyllis Wheatley. Now, I, I feel absolutely very fortunate that he's here to do so because uh, I freely admit, although Phyllis Wheatley is featured in this anthology, first of all, I was introduced to her work by my wife, Cincy. Um, and I then proceeded to read her work uh, until I met James, who is actually quite a serious scholar of her work and is in fact working on a book about her and her work. Um, so yeah, please uh, tell us a little about Phyllis Wheatley. How's everybody doing? <laughs> okay, so I feel very fortunate not only to be here, but um, to, to get to know Andre and Zinzi, you know, on a daily basis, um, being in the same neighborhood, um, being at the same institution, and so they get to see me like sulk about administration and all of that. So now I get to do something different than just like complain about deans <laughs> and shit. Um, and so, is, I hope the dean is in here. Uh, but but and this is being recorded too, by the way. Oh yeah. Well, can I curse in? That <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's giving me a thumbs up. Like go ahead. Okay my kind of place. So, so um, I, I'm really excited to say some, a few things about Phyllis Wheatley. I didn't want to bore you with all of the nerdy details, but I decided to quickly type up a few things. First and foremost, she published poems 
um, poems on various subjects, religious and moral, in 1773. Um, so at the very founding of America, we have uh, Phyllis Wheatley publishing the first volume of poetry or the first full volume of literature from any African American, although we have to put American in scare quotes, right? Like the American Revolution is in process, but not done yet. We also have to keep in mind that she was around 19 when she published this. Um, she was purchased at an auction block in Boston in 1761. We know that the ship was called the Phyllis. So every time you say Phyllis Wheatley, you're mentioning the slave ship. Talk about the story of exile in the heart of a stranger. <laughs> and the Wheatleys are the family who purchased her, John and Susanna Wheatley. So whenever you say Phyllis Wheatley, you are actually not referencing her. But you are referencing her. So already there's this gap in terms of who is she. And my hope in my scholarship is that I can restore a sense of mystery to her. I'm not writing a biography, but in this way her biography matters deeply because one of the problems with the scholarship over several generations in the 20th century was that there was a overly arrogant sense of um, mastery over who she was, what her politics were, how they showed up on the, the page of poetry or in her correspondence. And there was a lot of mis drastically violent misreadings of her because of all of these over-the-top assumptions. And so just to reiterate that fact, we don't even know her real name, I think gives us a, a, a more humbling starting point for understanding Wheatley. Um, she showed her skills as a reader and writer very early on in life. So the Wheatleys actually introduced her to the Boston classical curriculum. So she was reading Xenophon, Ovid. She was reading the, you know, a lot of more recent work. Her favorite author was, was Milton, and her favorite work was Paradise Lost. She nicknamed Milton the British Homer. So that lets you know what she thought of Milton. We have a copy of her Paradise Lost in Harvard. I mean, there's all kinds of evidence around her work. She published her first broadside of poetry at the age of 14. All right? So we have all these different versions of her poems because she published them as broadsides. She, she wrote many elegies for people, for, for prominent people and lesser known people who passed away throughout the New England area. She also, um, <laughs> she also ended up publishing her volume through um, donations from the Countess of Huntington in Britain. So not only is she the first African-American to publish a volume of verse, and she's, not, she's also only the second woman to publish a volume of verse in North America. The first one was Anne Bradstreet. She's also the first author to publish a volume in a transatlantic women's publishing enterprise because it was her, her mistress, Susanna Wheatley, and the Countess of Huntington, who were the main three people making it happen. And she spent around three to four months sometimes in Britain on her own building the connections to get the project done. She was not able to publish a second volume of poetry, although we know that she tried. Mm -hmm. She tried to get support for it, but couldn't. Um, there was a lot of politics around that. Um, lastly, when we think about Wheatley, um, there's a lot of different ways you could talk about her identity as a writer. It's obvious that you could say she's an American writer, and because she was um, 
taken, kidnapped from West Africa and brought to the US, you could say she's an African-American writer, right? Phenotypically, you could see her, it's obvious that she has African features, right? Well-known African features, all of that's true. For me, I like to think about her writing as black writing because of how heterogeneous it is. And that's the last thing I wanted to say before I start reading a poem of hers. And when I say heterogeneous, what do I mean? She comes from a portion of West Africa we don't know exactly, right? But she comes from, from the region of West Africa that was predominantly Islamic, but specifically Sufi Islam. And that's crucial because that portion of West Africa does not convert to Islam based on conquest. It's based on a long history of master teachers who became uh, 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 servants to the kings. And so you had this really well-known blend of polytheistic African and then uh, you know, African Islamic culture that she grew up in until she was taken around the age of seven or eight. So whatever the polytheisms were of, of her West African area, she had that in mind when she came to the US. The, the Sufi Islamic culture, she had that in mind when she came to the US. But then she becomes a devout Christian around the age of 13 and gets baptized right, in the New South Congregational Church in Boston. So she also picks up Christianity. And then to top it off, her education revolves around all of these ancient Greek and Roman figures. So that means the tropes that show up in her writing are Sufi Islamic, West African polytheistic, Christian, and Greek and ancient Greek and Roman. And so my goal as a literary scholar is to read her poetry in ways that actually can pick up on those various traditions of what happens when they're all commingled. Mm -hmm. And that's why I said it's black writing because it's so heterogeneous because if you took one thing out, it wouldn't be the same, mm -hmm. but not one single thing is the source, all right? So it's actually writing with no one single origin, <laughs> okay? And that's what I think makes it so interesting, but also means we have to raise the bar on what it means to do good scholarship on her work. Uh, is that a cool intro? <laughs> is that useful? Okay, all right. So my hope is that you'll want to read the book. <laughs> there we go. Phyllis Wheatleaf, A Farewell to America. Adieu, New England's smiling meads. Adieu, the flowery plain. I leave thine opening charms, O spring, and tempt the roaring main. In vain for me the flowerets rise and boast their gaudy pride, while here beneath the northern skies I mourn for health denied. Celestial maid of rosy hue, oh, let me feel thy reign. I languish till thy face I view, thy vanished joys regain. Susanna mourns, nor can I bear to see the crystal shower or mark the tender falling tear at sad departure's hour. Not regarding can I see her soul with grief oppressed, but let no sighs, no groans for me steal from her pensive breast. In vain the feathered warblers sing, in vain the garden blooms, and on the bosom of the spring breathes out her sweet perfumes. While for Britannia's distant shore we weep the liquid plain and with astonished eyes explore the wide extended main. Lo, health appears, celestial dame, complacent and serene with Habe's mental or her, her fame, or her frame with soul-delighting mien to mark the veil where London lies with misty vapors crowned, which cloud Aurora's thousand eyes and veil her charms around. Why, Phoebus, moves thy car so slow, so slow thy rising ray. Give us the famous town to view, thou glorious king of day. 
For thee, Britannia, I resign, New England's smiling fields, to view again her charms divine, what joy the prospect yields. But thou, temptation hence away, with all thy fatal train, nor once seduce my soul away by thine enchanting strain. Thrice happy they, whose heavenly shield secures the souls from harm and fell temptation on the field of all its power disarms. All right, thank you. <laughs> cool, cool. Thank cool. you very much. James Ford, thank you so much. Um, and you know, I think this is actually the perfect segue into your poem, Fred, um, which is one of the longer poems in the contemporary section of the book. But um, yeah, Fred, please. Right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read, um, <clears throat> my voice is quiet. I'm gonna read a, a poem that's called At the Grave of the Unknown African. And I, I wrote it, um, I was born in the UK. I had 10 years in the Caribbean, came back to the UK, and we were always looking for emblems of belonging to a British landscape. We knew that you know, the Romans brought with them black people, but there wasn't much evidence of it. It was always denied in the press. So we tended to look for monuments, fragments in, in, the, in, in the um, environment. And one place you would go to and find the black presence was at the graveyards, because sometimes when a, the royal, I guess a rich person owned an African slave, they would have them in their house. And when they died, if they were a very good slave, they would actually bury them and give them a headstone. Very unusual in the 18th century to have a headstone. If you're white and working class, you don't have one. So for a black person to get a headstone, they had to be like Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, in terms of their, their bearing, and you can imagine the way this slave was praised in this gravestone in a, gra in a, in a, a churchyard called um, Henbury Parish Church, outside of Bristol. So if you imagine London, you're going down towards the south end of, of the UK you would come to Bristol. Um, I named some places in the poem because there are a number of riots that took place in England in the 70s. Um, and they really were about belonging to a landscape in numbers that were significant enough, but with a frustration of being told you don't belong. So it seemed to be that um, when the riots happened, it was a declaration of being here in numbers sufficient enough to be able to throw a Molotov cocktail and have it not come back, you know. Or it came back with interest, you know, <laughs> the police force. Um, and it was largely because the police um, ruled the landscape and the argument was that if you're in a black community, did it belong, did the streets belong to you or to the police? The police said, you know, we own the streets and at night you get off the streets. The black community said, nope, at night we have to go buy our groceries, our second jobs, so the streets are also our place. So there was a real contest over moving across the map from A to B. It's in couplets, so it sounds a bit like Phyllis Wheatley. <laughs> so I have couplets um, in here, it's about six stresses. They're, they're Alexandrians, if you're interested. And the, the rhymes, I try to hide the rhymes as much as I could. It's in two halves. I speak about the graveyard, about the, the fact that I'm so glad to find this black person. Hello, Rihanna. Um, Christopher. People I know, I should try not to meet your eyes, but you're here. Um, <laughs> I kind of, in the first person, I talk about what it's like to see this person and what it's like to be in a country with riots and trying to belong as a poet, not somebody necessarily wanting to riot, but you know, dragged into the force of it. And then in the second half of the poem, there's a person, a conservationist, who looks after the graveyard 
and she picks up bottles and stuff and cleans, keeps it clean. All the graveyards in the UK have a friendly society that will look after it, make sure it's clean and so forth. She talks back to the poet and talks back to the history that I accuse the place of. At the grave of the unknown African, two round cocoa faces carved on whitewashed headstone protect your grave against hellfire and brimstone. Those cherubs with puffed cheeks as if chewing gum signal how you got here and where you came from. More than two and a half centuries after your death, the barefaced fact that you're unnamed feels like defeat. I got here via white ladies road and black boys hill clues lost in these lopsided stones that Henbury's vandal helps to the ground and Henbury's conservationist tries to rectify, cleaning the vandal's pissy love nest. African slave without a name. I'd call this home by now, would you? Your unknown soldier's tomb stands for shipload after shipload that docked, unloaded, watered, scrubbed, exercised, and restocked thousands more souls for sale in Bristol's port. Cab drivers speak of it all with yesterday's hurt. The good conservationist calls it her 300-year war. Those raids, deals, deceits, and capture, a sore still raw. St. Paul's, Toxteth, Brixton, Tiger Bay, and Hansworth Petrol bombs, flower in the middle of roads, a sudden growth at the feet of police lines, longer than any cricket pitch. African slave, your namelessness is the wick and petrol mix. Each generation catches the one fever love can't appease, nor Molotov cocktails, nor when they embrace in a peace, far from that three-named, two-bit vandal and conservationist binning beer cans, condoms, and headstones in big puzzle pieces. Stop right there, black Englishman, before you tell a bigger lie. You mean me well by what you say, but I can't stand idly by. The vandal who keeps coming and does what he calls fucks on the cool gravestones also pillages and wrecks. If he knew not so much my name, but what happened to Africans, He'd maybe put in an hour or two collecting his Heinekens. It's a terrible rhyme. Like the good old conservationist who's earned her column inch, who you knock, who I love without knowing her name. The dead can't write, nor can we sing, nor can most living. Our heirs, if you can call them heirs, make no good listening. Say what happened to me and countless like me, all and none. Say it urgently. Mean times may bring back the water cannon. I died young, but to age as a slave would have been worse. What can you call me, Mohammed, Homer, Hannibal, Jesus? Would it be too much to have them all? What are couples up to when one reclines on the stones and is ridden by the other? Will our talk excite the vandal? He was here like you are now, armed with a knife. I could see trouble in his creased brow, love trouble, not for some girl, but for this village. I share his love and would have let him spoil my image if it wasn't for his blade in the shadow of the church wall, taking me back to my capture and long sail to Bristol, then my sail on Black Boy's Hill and disease ending my days.
I sent a rumble up his soul. He scooted shocked and dazed. Here, the sentence is the weight, and the weight is the sentence. I've had enough of a parish where the congregation can't sing. Take me where the hymns sound like a fountain-washed canary, and the bare-swilling, condom-wielding vandal of Henbury reclines on the stones, and the conservationist mounts him, and in my crumbly airs, there's only the sound of them sinning. <laughs> All right, thank you, Fred. Um, so I, I really wasn't kidding when I was talking about self-pity earlier, uh, because it turns out when you look at the literature of exile, which is what I did for about three years, trying to collect all the material, uh, there is a lot of literature that basically just qualifies as just, yeah, that really, self-pity. So you will see pages upon pages of woe is me. Um, so what I wanted to do instead of this book is provide uh, excerpts from pieces of writing that tell you what exile looks like, what it feels like, how it shapes your very identity. And we've been speaking about journeys for, for a little bit now, and there's another one that I wanted to read to you. Um, this is called, the poem is called In 1864, and again, uh, because in exile turns out to be so inspiring, so many epics have been written, I tried to represent as many as I could, obviously by just trying to get the most representative excerpts. And here, I think what will make a, a little bit easier before launching into the excerpt of this narrative poem is to read a little preface written by the author herself. So the poet in question is Lucy Tapahonso. She is a Native American poet, one of the best of her generation. She's still uh, alive, although as far as I can tell, she hasn't written much in the past few years. So this book is about 25 years old, um, but I'll launch right into the preface of this excerpt. In 1864, Tapahonso writes, 8,354 Navajos were forced to walk from Dineta to Bosque Redondo in southern New Mexico, a distance of 300 miles. They were held for four years until the US government declared the assimilation attempt a failure. More than 2,500 died of smallpox and other illnesses, depression, severe weather conditions, and starvation. The survivors returned to Dineta in June of 1868. So the excerpt that I'm going to pick up here is where uh, Tapahanso essentially is researching her family history by talking to her own family. So it begins, my aunt always started the story saying, you are here because of what happened to your great grandmother long ago. They began rounding up the people in the fall. Some were lured into surrendering by offers of food, clothes, and livestock. So many of us were starving and suffering that year because the Bilagania kept attacking us. Kit Carson and his army had burned all the fields and they killed our sheep right in front of us. We couldn't believe it. I covered my face and cried. All my life we had sheep. They were like our family. It was then I knew our lives were in great danger. We were all so afraid of that man, red shirt, that's Kit Carson and his army. Some people hid in the foothills of the Quasca Mountains and in Canyon de Shelley. Our family talked it over and we decided to go to this place. What would our lives be like without sheep, crops, and land? At least we thought we would be safe from gunfire and our family would not starve. The journey began and the soldiers were all around us. All of us walked, some carried babies. Little children and the elderly stayed in the middle of the group. We walked steadily each day, stopping only when the soldiers wanted to eat or rest. 
We talked among ourselves and cried quietly. We didn't know how far it was or even where we were going. All that was certain was that we were leaving Dinita, our home. So that's an excerpt from a poem that only gets better and better, although more depressing and more depressing each time. Um, the one, one of the things I wanted to highlight as well about the book is that uh, the color of the cover isn't coincidental in the sense that it, it's, it's a very red book. Uh, it was by the end of putting it together after these three years that I realized that um, I ended up putting so many left-wing writers into it. The simple reason, I guess, being is that right-wingers have always found it a lot easier to exile people than left-wingers have, aparting certain famous exceptions. Um, and in fact, uh, so some of the activists represented in this book, I think, are uh, truly very interesting and uh, underlooked these days. An example would be the communard Louise Michel, who was exiled to Guyana, uh, to a penal colony, and Emma Goldman. And yeah. um, I think Fred's actually going to read to us I, yeah. a little excerpt from right. the, the <clears throat> Goldman. She's my favorite anarchist. <laughs> um, in, in the UK, we're always looking for not just people who were counter a kind of global capitalist enterprise that just used black bodies and threw them away. We wanted to see a system that was also criticizing some of the alternatives that were prevalent. And she had a kind of communism that seemed really inclusive and, and very early for her would count and didn't exclude black people or see them outside of the class system and try to put them in a compartment. In other words, if you were a Marxist, you would say, well, if you come behind class as a black person, we'll look after your liberation because that was the major capitalist enterprise. You know? And then a number of folks said no, CLR James and a bunch of folks said no, that's wrong. You have to look at a black experience and a black presence to understand capitalism globally, not just a labor-based analysis. And anarchism didn't have so much of an analysis for race, but had an inclusive space for race. In other words, it didn't legislate against you. It just said, come on board and help us understand this opposition that we're facing. Her, her testament is really interesting in that it's really rough for her. It's 1919, late 1920s, mm -hmm. the first expulsion. It's 100 years and six and months ago, something yeah, like that. Yeah, and she's expelled from the US. And the way she writes this, she hides some letters. You'll hear her describe how hard it is to be on Ellis Island about to leave the US, not knowing what's going to happen, and the fear, but also the strength in her voice. And it make, made me feel that there are these early emblems of opposition to, to um, mercantilism and then globalization that had to do with people who felt it was wrong and they knew it was wrong and even if they had an analysis they also knew that something had to be done against its um, despotism thank you um, <laughs> a, that's an emergency the book is full of by the way the book is an emergency kind of book we should we should say i mean we sound casual but it's an urgent content in the book i feel it brings back a politics to our lives i know it's in a flat object and the lines are sequential and so on. It looks like it's a tame content, but it's a living emblem of resistance that goes back, way back. So that when you feel disconsolate, if you feel disconsolate by the next year of electioneering, just remember <laughs> that there are early and early emblems of resistance, always in literature, and that whatever we ha is happening now has happened before. And there are <laughs> resistances to it that were successful. That's why we have a continuous fight against despotism. It isn't because it's new, it's because it's old, and then come again, and I'm ready for you. You know, it's not that you're the first, you have examples of resistance that are old. Phyllis Wheatley is a wonderful example of that. Lone black woman, kid when she's captured, and yet she has this natural poetic ver verb against despotism. 
learns Latin, secretes her opposition in there, writes a prose, a praise poem to a white person who dies, and manages to put in there emblems of her survival so that we later on would get those and be able to decode it with some care. She got it past her censors. To be published back then was an enormous, enormous achievement to have a black woman, a woman, so young get a book published. So we know that she relied on her aristocratic generosity to get the book published, but she also had to be a real fighter, a real poet, um, willing to kind of put her word up front. And you know, we, we, we are so glad her work is around, the Lade Equiano, a bunch of other people who published books in the 18th century who had to have, if they were alive today, would be the equivalent of Barack Obama and King in terms of their drive because they were facing an opposition that you can't believe against their bodies. Their very sense of being was being denied. And for them to have a poetic sensibility and a conviction that she has tells you how much she had to be selfishly aware of her poetic drive against all the odds. So we, we kind of see her and take her for granted, but she's something of a miracle. Um, Emma Goldman is, is a similar figure. Saturday, December 20th was a hectic day with vague indications that it might be our last. We'd been assured by the Ellis Island authorities that we were not likely to be sent away before Christmas, certainly not for several days to come. Meanwhile, we were photographed, fingerprinted, and tabulated like convicted criminals. The day was filled with visits from numerous friends who came individually and in groups. Self-evidently, reporters also did not fail to honor us. Did we know when we were going and where? And what were, what were my plans about Russia? I said I will organize a society of Russian friends of American freedom. The American friends of, Russian, of Russia had done much to help liberate that country. It is now the turn of free Russia to come to the aid of America. Harry Weinberger was still very hopeful and full of fight. He would soon get me back to America, he insisted, and I should keep myself ready for it. Bob Miner smiled incredulously. He was greatly moved by our approaching departure. We had fought together in many battles, and he was fond of me. Sasha, he literally idolized, and he felt his deportation as a severe personal loss. The pain of separation from Fitzy was somewhat mitigated by her decision to join us in Soviet Russia at the first opportunity. Our visitors were about to leave when Weinberger was officially notified that we were to remain on the island for several more days. We were glad of it, and we arranged with our friends to come again, perhaps for the last time on Monday, no callers being allowed on the island on the Lord's Day. I returned to the pen I was sharing with my two girl comrades. The pen is a, is a jail cell. The state charge of criminal anarchy against Ethel had been withdrawn, but she was to be deported just the same. She'd been brought to America as a child. Her entire family were in the country, as well as the man she loved, Samuel Lipman, sentenced to 20 years at Leavenworth. She had no affiliations in Russia and was unfamiliar with its language, but she was cheerful, saying that she had good cause to be proud. She was barely 18, yet she had already succeeded in making the powerful United States government afraid of her. Dora Lipman's mother and sisters lived in Chicago. They were working people too poor to afford a trip to New York, and the girl knew that she would have to leave without even bidding goodbye to her loved ones. Like Ethel, she'd been in the country for a long time, slaving in factories and adding to the country's wealth. Now she was being kicked out, but fortunately her lover was also among the men to be deported. I had not met either of the girls before, but our two weeks on Ellis Island had established a strong bond between us. 
This evening, my roommates again kept watch while I was hurriedly answering important mail and penning my last farewell to our people. It was almost midnight when suddenly I caught the sound of approaching footsteps. Look out, someone's coming, Ethel whispered. I snatched up my papers and letters and hid them under my pillow. Then we threw ourselves in our beds, covered up, and pretended to be asleep. All right. Thank you, Fred. <laughs> um, so one of the final things, and I'm going to read a final poem and then uh, give it over to you, but one of the things I wanted to say in relation to all the readings that you've heard from so far is that the pieces were selected in this book to kind of have a conversation with each other. So just a few pages before, you have this excerpt from Emma Goldman's memoirs talking about getting deported during the first Red Scare. A few pages before that, you've got Emma uh, Lazarus's poem, The New Colossus, uh, Give Me You're Tired, You're Hungry, You're Poor. So you have these two pieces interacting with each other. And you have old favorites alongside new discoveries that I made essentially in the most unlikely of places. I, I, I'm not going to be able to read to you this particular piece because it's essentially an excerpt from a novel. It's a little too complicated for you to absorb uh, in a sitting like this. But I wanted to tell you the story of the person in question um, because the author, Omnath Pokharel, belonged to the Bhutanese Hindu community. And Bhutan has been in the news um, usually in a positive way whenever it is described as uh, this idyllic mountain kingdom uh, lost in the Himalayas. Uh, some of you may have heard uh, reference to it because they were the first country on earth to come up with the concept of gross national happiness and appointed a minister for public happiness. Now here's the catch to that. Unfortunately, this idyllic mountain kingdom in the 70s decided that the way that you could get 70% of the population happy was to kick out the other 30% of the population. So because they thought of themselves as a Buddhist majority country, they, they decided, well, the Hindus, they're uh, more recent arrivals than we are, and so ejected them en masse. And the reason I'm telling you this story is because this is where they showed up. Um, what I'm also talking about here, the expulsion of the, uh, their official name is Lakshampas. They are Bhutanese Hindus. And uh, 250,000 of them were resettled in the US, mostly in, in farming regions, uh, because that's how they made their living when they were still allowed to live in Bhutan. And so they've all been resettled here. And there isn't really that much of a literature belonging to that community. But the author that I was able to find here passed away, I think, about two, three years ago. And I actually managed to get the manuscript from his brother. So there's old familiar favorites like, you know, again, the new Colossus uh, balanced with these new finds. Um, everything you've heard so far has been largely depressing and negative, And uh, that is the way it should be. I think if exile was a stock, you'd want to invest in it because there's always going to be exile, right? But I think um, while people like Edward Said used to say that it's this unhealable rift, it also should be recognized that in a small majority of cases, uh, it is also very much a positive experience that it can allow one to uh, lead the kind of life that one would be un unable to live where they were originally. And there's a poem that I included here, which I tend to read when I close these events because it just sums up that feeling fairly well. And it's by the Singaporean poet Ji Leong Ko. And it's an advice sort of poem, uh, and it's entitled To a Yang Poet. Quit the country as soon as you can before you're set on a career path or marrying the home ownership scheme. Pay no heed to the village elders. They are secretly ashamed that they never left. Quit the country, but do not shake the dust off your feet against it. Leave instead with a secret smile for all that leaving has to teach you. Learn what it is to be welcomed for the coin in your purse, for strong hips and pushing a cart uphill, 
a firm voice in a good cause. When the welcome wears off, as it will, learn to leave again, this time by the sea. Be always on your way, and on arrival, sleep with anyone who asks. You never know what gift they may have for you in the morning. You will discover suddenly or over the course of a winter night what gift you have for them. Always kiss goodbye on the lips. There will be seasons of great loneliness. You cannot outrun it. So sit and survey the thunderless desert. In every town, pick up the local accent and blend it into your own, already impure, as a secret ingredient is fused into the top note of a perfume. Hearing you, the taberna will wonder where you are from. Drink deep of their wonderment. Do not betray it. Thank you very much for listening to us tonight. Um, thanks again to Fred and to James. Um, really very lucky to have both of them here, so thank you. Um, and yeah, I guess, you know, uh, questions. Uh, if there are any, or if not, great, everyone can retreat for a drink. Um, but I'm happy to take them. Yeah. Uh, the very last poem, Gillian Cole. Okay. He's from Singapore, but he lives in New York City, has done for a long time now. Yeah. yeah. In fact, some of your past when I was thinking through it this whole reading, you mentioned the Roma as mm -hmm. never creating a, a conflict. Mm -hmm. And that made me think deeper. Why would they not create a conflict? Well, mm -hmm. lack of nation state. Yes. And, and it reminded me of something I was seeing last night about LA firemen who go down to Skid Row. And they're in a bad situation because they don't have great heaters for units and they, they do want to do more outreach service to families of different kinds of care, um, which is a concerning thing that will come up on the ballot soon. But what I noticed is these paramedics knew the same people who are overdosing every day, knew the same diabetic problems, knew all the chronic health problems, and they see the same problems. They're saving the same lives basically every day. And there's this guy who's helping the paramedics and he's like the mayor of Skidot. Everyone thinks of him as the mayor of Skidot. I was like, these are landless people. Mm -hmm. How is he creating that? These are the true Roma of our nation. Mm -hmm. All of America <laughs> is looking at us right now because we're going to fix this. Mm -hmm. we, we are going to fix this because that's what we do. And uh, how interesting is it, the currency that transacts in communities like this last poem? Well, what, what I like about Andre's book, Andre's a um, writer in residence at UCLA right now. Um, so if you want to find him, come to the English department and he'll be there in some shape or form. Um, but what I like about his book is that you, you've mentioned a political situation and of course the fallout of privatization and you know, property and wealth and so forth. The book has got an amazing thing. It invests in an imaginative resistance to all that, those systems, going back 
to the very beginning. So why, why I like the book, and I feel like a dinosaur because the people in here <laughs> go way back to think, God, I'm still alive and I'm here to be in the book. <laughs> if you're alive and you're in the book, um, you know, I'm, I'm, is that it shows a line, a line of resistance through the imaginative arts. And it's not one that you can prescribe easily or have a, an invoice for uh, about. And I think because it's unpredictable and largely open to conjecture and, um, I guess, concentration and empathy and so forth, it means that it's going to yield for readers new resistances and forms that are embedded in here that the writer wouldn't have known about if they're writing like Phyllis Wheatley. She was entrusting her work to a future generation without being able to prescribe exactly what that resistance would be, but she knew she couldn't say certain things or else it wouldn't get published. So I think those forms of resistance, by being folded into literary uh, procedures, makes a, a new kind of republic. The book becomes a new kind of territory, not on any kind of map. And so I'm really glad to be associated with those things that are not, yeah. And the question of land, I think, that you brought up um, is, is very important. I mean, uh, the, as far as we know, the very first piece of literature ever written anywhere was a, uh, and it's, it's hard not to think of it as written by a woman, but it's essentially a uh, female perspective survivor's account of uh, fleeing the city of Ur, which was raised at the time. So that's our very first literary record. It's written by a woman in the voice of a female goddess talking about destruction and being displaced because of land issues, fighting over land. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I think it's just something I started thinking about right at the end of putting the book together because I think um, this sort of literature was on my mind for about a decade. The book took three years to assemble. I mean, it's something essentially I was able to do right after my first book because A, I had the publishing connections and B, you know, look at the news. What kind of publisher, because they are business people, keep that in mind, wouldn't look at the news and think, ah, oh, yes, you know, a book about displaced people and, you know, let's capitalize on misery. They're always up for that. But, um, I mean, I'm, I'm an exile um, in a very loose form. I was uh, raised on the island of Abu Dhabi uh, alongside about, say, 80% of the population who are these temporary migrant workers. My father sank about 30 years of sweat and blood into that country. And we have to renew our visas every year. At 18, you have to leave um, because the only way you can stay in the country if you're not uh, an Emirati is that you have to get yourself a job, which means that you then have a sponsor and they tell you what to do, when to leave. And so it's not really a job. It's more 
a slightly modernized version of being an indentured servant in many ways. And the racial category, yeah, absolutely. And the racial categories are such that, you know, the wider you are, the more privileges you have within that system, the darker you are. And, you know, they've got, it's this country of 5 million people. 60% uh, of them are workers from South Asia, you know. So I'm, I'm an exile. My father's, um, he, had the, he had the great fortune to be a, a communist in Iran in 1979, um, meaning that um, uh, he was taken to the airport by a 15-year-old at Kalashnikov and told, well, next time, you know. Mm -hmm. So he never went back. I never went, I've never been to Iran, even though I'm half Iranian. But uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm an exile, I'm the son of an exile, so there was always a personal component, I think that comes across in the poems, but this book, I think, ended up being a chance to have conversations with people like Fred, with James, with the other people I've toured this book with, because this is maybe the fifth or sixth event I've done. Uh, the, the US edition of this book launches, I guess, today's Saturday, Monday, so Monday's the official pub date, it's out, but it's available here, obviously. The UK edition pub uh, came out about six months ago, so, yeah, the book was an excuse to to have conversations with these people. Really, I mean, it was it was kind of a and and learning really. I mean, uh, at some point, I hope to write a book about gross national happiness, and I wouldn't have been able to do that without, you know, digging up stories for this book. Um, yeah, and by the way, the the whole gross national happiness, just as an addendum to that, it is it is a uh, becoming a fashionable thing. There's very the UAE adopted its uh, first uh, minister of uh, happiness. I think Ecuador joined that list. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's more dangerous than you might think. I think this is, you know, George Carlin, the great comedian, <laughs> used to say, you know, the next time the Nazis come back, it won't be in leather boots, it'll be with smiley faces. And I think this may well be, you know, the beginning of George's nightmare. So, yeah, but thank you. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, what happened with this book essentially is that it, it is mostly poetry, but it is narrative poetry. So it, it's incredibly readable in that way. Although there's, in essence, uh, excerpts from diaries. I mean, there's even weird little things like Victor Hugo, the great French novelist. He writes about being in exile in the Isle of Guernsey and saying, uh, Guernsey and saying that um, he had to pay the Queen of England one hen per year as a uh, you know foreign resident. So you get weird little details like that. Um, I think that's something that ties the literature of exile together, this almost anthropological nature of it, because by being thrust into areas unknown and having to adapt, you really end up cataloging things in a way that people who live in that situation hardly ever seem to do. I mean, we've known for a long time that the outsider's eye is always great, is always has this perspective that perhaps people living within that situation don't have. I mean, people still read the Tocqueville about America, right? And he was a Frenchman. So I think, um, yeah, there's this running thread throughout the literature of exile, but what I ended up doing actually, and this is, it's a piece that I would really encourage people to read, I'm looking it up. It's called Notes from the uh, Middle World, and it's by the South African poet and painter Brayton Breitenbach, who basically tries to come up with these kind of rules, but not rules, because he acknowledges that the, the, idea, the idea that to even try and come up with rules for something as vast 
uh, and heterogeneous as exile um, would be impossible. But he tries to come up with this tentative uh, list of rules, and he even comes up with a genealogy. So he, he mentions a bunch of people, for example, people like Paul Celan, who suddenly find themselves without homelands. So he, he tries to do this, and I think it's, it's, um, it's a very noble attempt, but as he says himself in the beginning, it's doomed to fail, although it gets us to think about you know, these questions. Um, um, do, do you think there is, I like your question because it implies there might be something running through all exile forms of brain and, and creativity. One of them seems to be that you have, that Phyllis Wheatley has a f the famous poem column being brought from Africa to America. And the feeling is that the tension generated by removal, forced in her case, generates a kind of psychic need to speak back to that absence. And a lot of the writings in, in the anthology have at least two places in conversation, or at least a sense of removal, and it creates a third imaginative space that tries to entertain those two. So it's not a binary anymore because of the third. And so I think that runs through the work, and that might be at least a minimal skeletal fr frame for, for um, exile writing. Mm. Would, you, would you agree? Because mm. one thing about why we got on without even meeting each other, our biographies of movement across different landscapes and loyalties to at least two places, and uh, <laughs> at least two. Yeah, at least couple two. Yes, minimum two. Um, meant that we, we, felt, we felt a sense of, you know, we didn't like single theories. We didn't like a sense of nationalism that you mentioned. We felt that, you know, we're suspicious of, you know, closing off borders. We see borders as porous, necessarily so, because of our own movement. We insist on that as a way of being. So I think imaginative procedures are all about inclusion and about porous border, borders and movements backwards and forwards, at least two places, at least a third. So it's about multiplicity. Mm -hmm. And I think that if there was to be a theory, if you could boil it down, it might be something like that, where you have at least two or three places in conversation and some psychic gap in the body of the person talking about it that has to be filled with utterance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, no, please. Um, please do. I, I just wanted to, to throw in there that, that when, because Phyllis Wheatley is publishing right when the American Revolution is in process, and in her mind, I think she... She could, I mean, people in Britain were saying, why do you even go back? Just stay here because you'll automatically be free. And I think she wanted to go back because she identified as belonging to the revolution, um, to the American Revolution. And I think in her mind, it was an inescapable, inescapable logical outcome that the end of slavery would come with the American Revolution. It did. It took 75 more years. <laughs> she would have never thought it would have taken 75 more years. Mm. But the bigger point I'm trying to make here is, on the one hand, it, it's not just that it's different places in play for her. It's that it's competing versions of sovereignty, right? Different forms of law. But there's all these poems like the one that, that um, Andre added here, where she's constantly talking about nature, about wildness. Mm. The way to, it seems to me that the way to live a full life is to be aware of the sovereignties you have to deal with, but to always look for that space where wildness, where nature, where <laughs> our connections to life go beyond the law. She never got rid of that in her writing. Uh, there was never a moment where becoming American meant she could abandon the rest of what the earth is. Mm -hmm. And so on the one hand, she's connected to this really important political event, but she's also anthologized in nature writing. Mm. You know, because and travel writing, so the travel <laughs> nature, mm. because there was all of this in betweenness to her existence, 
Mm-hmm. She actually never depended on the that final set of political laws to right. be aware of who she was. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that there's a number of works in here that are skeptical of sovereignty in that kind of generation. Mm-hmm. Well, because they know what sovereignty tends to do, right? I think that's that's the end result. And I think, you know, earlier I referred to self-pity. Uh, I wasn't just trying to be weird or funny. I think um, exile, in many cases, if there is such a thing as a rule, perhaps one of them would be exile presents you with a choice. You could either run inward endlessly, pity, or you could expand outward. And I think it's the people who expand outward. Breitenbach talks about this a little bit in that essay I mentioned. And I think it presents you with this choice. And it, it seems like once you make it, you don't get a do-over. So it's an important one to keep in mind. Ovid definitely never uh, kept that. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but yeah, so. I, th- I think, too, there's, there's, before we privilege the idea of movement, that you can only become exile if you've yeah. moved, yeah. there is something about the individual body that might be alienated from its place. The, what Seamusini called the, the, the idea of the inner, inner emigre, he mm-hmm. called himself, yeah. an inner emigre where he felt that the times he was in were so bold and required drawing a line in the sand where you're pro-IRA, you're pro-independence. He felt that poetry was, for him, a space that was quite different to that in flavor and feel. So he called himself an inner emigre. <laughs> and I think that condition of being exiled in the place where you're supposed to be comfortable because there's something about you you know, you're a weirdo, weirdo because of poetry. Maybe your poetics, and there's something about the sensibility that seems to be quite weird. It makes you feel as a tangent to your times, and maybe there's that too. So I do think there are communities to be built, not just about between people who have moved and have been sentenced to move, but with people who belong to a place where they feel ill at ease mm. because that place isn't allowing them to be fully rounded, whatever that might be. And so I do think there's some. Your, what I like about your book is that the heart. The heart becomes plural. It's the hearts, <laughs> because of that, you make it a very, very large mansion with very many rooms mm-hmm. to reinvent yourself. Okay. Um, if no one else has any questions, we can wrap this up. But thank you again for uh, you know coming. Um, I really appreciate it. Right. Great. Thank you. Good night. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.